0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. One thing I wanted to do briefly is I wanted to revisit the Alice Notley podcast on Jack's would speak through the imperfect medium of Alice. Mm -hmm. And there was one thing that, that came up, which I thought we didn't really deal with concisely or a sort of obvious disconnection connection that I thought we might have wanted to make. And that is relative to the one perfect word I believe is the last words of the poem, mm. juxtaposed with the title, the imperfect uh, medium of Alice and that perfection imperfection. And we talked about various aspects of the, for example, perfect New York school poem, uh, the perfect of the, the the one pure word, all these levels of the you know, kind of fl- fake Platonism uh, of this realm of the heavenly and the per- self-perfected and all that versus this idea of the imperfect medium. And it struck me that relative to what we talked about with Alice Notley and the idea of a naughty poem <laughs> is that the, the thing that creates a knot is an imperfection knots are formed by some sort of irritant that enters into the wood and creates this reaction in the tree that creates these knots or it's where the tree branches off and it creates these knots where this extension is possible. And that when you're quartering wood, it's very difficult to, to divide a piece of wood at its knot. Like that's a takes a huge amount of effort Whereas the quote unquote perfect parts of the tree that are without knots, you can slam through with ease, you know, with the greatest of ease. And so it struck me that perhaps Alice Notley might be pointing toward a poetry of of imperfections that can't be cut through Mm -hmm. and poems that are what they mean, that there's no exterior that can be applied to it to interpret it or to absorb it, to synthesize it into some other structure, suck it up, hoover it up. And I and I guess I just sort of felt like that was something that was kind of there because she brings it up early and closes with it.
1: It's nice. I mean, I, I feel like I have to point out, which I think I already did, that her use of the word imperfect seems like it's probably ironic. And that it could be, you know, this poem of Alice's and the poem of Bernadette's that we're um, about to talk about, you know, are women's poems written in kind of the male world of poetry. And there's a little bit of a kind of teasing gesture of saying, well, I'm only a woman. I'm an imperfect vehicle jack is perfect and but is she imperfect and 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 is the perfect word at the end of the poem really perfect i think you can kind of flip both of them over i think in a way alice is saying yes my imperfection is what makes me a human being that's what makes me valid i don't want to be a pure uh vehicle for someone else
0: right it makes me a little indigestible and Mm. Um, yeah, I I, I think that I just you know I think that it's just this interesting aspect that we didn't fully explore. Yeah. No. So we do want to talk about Bernadette's poem "Eve of Easter," and uh, you know Bernadette was born in 1945 in Ridgewood, Queens. New York. It's she was born right on the border between Brooklyn and Queens, like on the road that separated those to Burroughs yeah it's called Myrtle Avenue oh yeah yeah I think that's right Myrtle Avenue yeah
2: my in-laws live there that's how I know
0: oh fantastic Um. yeah she was born there her her dad was an electrician her mom did secretarial work she had a sister an older sister named Rose Marie and she was or became an artist And performance artist also. Um, And, you know, in her own right, like a significant American contributor to, uh, to culture. And their parents died at an early age. Her mom died. Then her dad died. Then they moved in with her uncle. Her uncle died. They were pretty much orphans by the time Bernadette was about 16. And she left. And she followed her sister into Manhattan, more or less. Her sister was going out with Vito Acconci, oh. the uh, the artist, performance artist. And so quickly, Bernadette gravitated to that world and actually started like a fantastic journal that Ugly Duckling published, uh, The Complete zero to nine which was a literary uh, mimeograph machine journal great great resource for this period that really we've been talking about the last couple of podcasts and um she got an undergraduate degree from the the, the new school s- of social research yeah and bernadette was already in the in the 60s you know bernadette's one of those poets that she emerged with a pen in her hand writing at a level of sophistication of a mature poet like a you know her early works are completely um radical interesting idiosyncratic grammatically complicated everything is going on um like totally she was she was born cool (laughs) and yeah totally and then um Uh, Her work memory was kind of her big, uh, and and I guess that was her work memory in which she took a roll of film, 30, I guess a roll of film had 30 shots in it. um, And she did that for 30 days. So how many many pictures to a roll? I don't know. So she ended up with like 1,200 pictures. And then she wrote. About those pictures subsequently, and it um, formed an art show uh, with her speaking those her narrative of those images. Mm. So it's a great, like, performance art thing, um, which is actually recently republished. It was partially published and then fully published by Siglio, and I guess that came out last year, earlier this year. So, at any rate, so she started publishing poetry in the late 60s, 70s. She met Lewis. Lewis He'd already, yeah, Lewis Warsh, excuse me. And he'd already been going out with Ann Waldman. And I guess he was there in 1966 at the famous Berkeley Poetry Conference. The one where Charles Olson spent like four hours ranting and everybody left. And, you know, there was a real kerfuffle. They'd started Angel Hair Press. So Bernadette and Lewis had known each other for some time. They got together and spent some time in New York. And then eventually they moved to Massachusetts, initially Worthington, Massachusetts, and then Lenox. And so now we're in the mid seventies. They produced a work of collaborative memoir writing, you could say called piece of cake, which we station Hill recently published and She also did a book in that period in the mid-70s, I guess it was published in 77, called The Golden Book of Words. And in The Golden Book of Words is found this poem that we want to talk about, which is called Eve of Easter. Um, Station Hill published all her early books, eight in total, called Eating the Colors of a Lineup of Words. And um, so you can find it in that volume.
1: And Bernadette
0: and Lewis had two kids, is that right? Uh, yeah, they had three kids oh. Sophia, Maria, and Max.
1: And there were three kids in this poem, but I think one of them is not hers. One of them is Rachel.
0: Rachel, Sophia, and Maria are mentioned in the poem. Yeah, yeah I think Rachel, um, I guess maybe is Paul Metcalf's. Um, daughter paul metcalf was the great great grand great 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 grandson of herman melville ah. he was living in the berkshires i'm not exactly certain when but there was a whole social scene eastern new york and western massachusetts at that period uh clark coolidge was also around was, was metcalf a poet metcalf was a poet writing in prose i think station hill published his book on the lincoln assassination called mm. the assassination and he was kind of a historian but idiosyncratic it's got a little bit of the flavor of susan howe if you mystical know work yeah mm. kind of a mystical american historical writing i don't know so i've been rapping for a while i didn't mean great to... summary
1: of bernadette's life
0: Now it was oh, really up to that point yeah was Bernadette raised? Well, her parents died young,
2: but was, there was a working class Catholicism that was present.
0: In yeah, her- very good point. She, she went to parochial school. Yeah. It was run by nuns and she detested it. She did a book called Eruditio Ex Memoria, which we also published in this omnibus volume uh, based on her notes when she was in Catholic school.
1: I think you know the, the only conversation I remember ever having with Bernadette was uh, I think I asked her if she was Jewish, and I think she said her grandfather was Jewish or was maybe Jewish because Mayer can you know is a very typically a Jewish name, but I think it was a pretty distant kind of Jewishness that she had if she if I'm right and she was slightly Jewish. But this poem kind of touches interestingly touches on Jewishness. Yeah, it does. Yeah, totally.
0: And Catholic identity, too.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't remember that part.
0: The one thing I I thought to do for this podcast, which is a departure from our historic old pattern, and that is to play the reading that she gave, I guess, at St. Mark's, um, you know, 40 years ago, first rather than at the end. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that might make a kind of different uh, table for us to eat off.
1: Yeah, I think that makes
0: sense. Oh, yeah? April 26, 1978.
3: Milton, who made his illiterate daughters read to him in five languages till they heard the news he would marry again and said they'd rather hear he was dead. Milton, who turns even Paradise Lost into an autobiography, I have three babies tonight, all three are sleeping. Rachel, the great-great-great-granddaughter of Herman Melville, is asleep on the bed. Sophia and Marie are sleeping. Sophia, namesake of the wives of Louis Friedson, the scholar, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Marie, my mother's oldest name, these three girls resting in the dark, I made the lucent dark. I stole images from Milton to cure opacous gloom, to render the... ...room and orb beneath this raucous moon of March, eclipsed only in daylight, heavy breathing baby bodies, daughters and descendants in the presence of the Great Ones, Milton and Melville and Hawthorne, everyone is speaking at once. I only looked at them, all blended, each half-Semitic, of a race always at war. The rest of their inherited grace, from among Nordics, Germans and English... Writers at peace, rushing warring Jews into democracy when actually peace is at the window begging entrance with the hordes in the midst of air too cold for this time of year. Eve of Easter and the shocking resurrection idea, someone baby stirs now hungry for an egg. It's the Melville baby going to make a fuss, the Melville one sucking her fingers for solace. She makes a squealing noise, Hawthorne baby still deeply asleep, the one like my mother, out like a light. The Melville one, though, the smallest, wants the most because she doesn't really live here. Hawthorne will want to be nursed when she gets up. Melville sucked a bit and dozed back off. Now Hawthorne is moving around. She's the most hungry, yet perhaps the most seduced by darkness in the room. I can hear Hawthorne. I know she's awake now. But will she stir, disturbing the placid sleep of Melville and insisting on waking us all? Meanwhile, the rest of the people of Lenox drive up and down the street. Now Hawthorne wants to eat. They all see the light by which I write, Hawthorne sighs, the house is quiet. I hear Melville's toy, I've never changed the diaper of a boy. I think I'll go get Hawthorne and nurse her for the pleasure of cutting through the darkness before the noise of measure stimulates the boys. I'll cook a fish, retain poise in the presence of heady descendants. Stone will, their fathers look at me and drink ink. I return a look to all the daughters and I wink. Eve of Easter, I've inherited this peaceful sleep of the children of men. Rachel, Sophia, Marie, and again me, Bernadette. All heart I live, all head, all eye, all ear. I lost the prejudice of paradise and wound up caring for the babies of these guys.
2: Yeah, I mean, I am encountering religious themes. Christian themes in a way that's um somewhat subversive I and mean, here what it, here, my, here's my reading I think um I'm reading the, the eve of Easter maybe this is low-hanging fruit I'm going to go for it anyway maybe a little incoherent because I, I haven't tried it out yet but eve of Easter not only as evening before Easter but as um interpreted the living Eve or the living woman um of Easter would be the um, the point of departure that I would take if I were writing a hypothetical essay or reflection on this poem. And I'm aware that on Easter, there's this um, story of the three Marys, the the three women who are the first disciples, if you will, to encounter the resurrected Jesus in the garden. And the difficulty with these women is that they're notoriously hard to distinguish from one another. So they're known by the names of men, or they're known by the names of the town that they're affiliated with. And the three Marys are Mary Magdalene, of course, the most well-known of the Marys. There's Mary of Clopas, and Clopas is um, a a man, a male figure in the New Testament. And then there's Mary Salome is the third Mary, Um, and that's a nod to the to the, grand, to the daughter of King Herod, the story of um, Salome and John the Baptist, and I just I see some of these parallels um, in the poem as well, and um, it, it was just striking to me. I, I didn't encounter this in some secondary source. The reason it occurred to me is because we have a painting, a reproduction of a Renaissance, the three Marys at the tomb of Jesus, and huh. as I was reading this poem. And it just clicked. And I thought, okay, this huh. is some sort of fragment from her Catholic school education, but it's also a protest against the rather thin representation of women. The truth of the oh. matter is that the first sermon in the New Testament is given by a woman. Huh. Jesus appears to a woman or women who then convey his resurrection to the male disciples who are in hiding. So this huh. poem in memory of her, I think, um, through her daughters. I think it's a, it's a profound love poem to her daughters, but it's also an attempt to reclaim and the, the, these very important female figures from the, from the story of, of Easter who came to the sepulchre of Jesus. And I know in Eastern Orthodoxy, the three Marys are among the, uh, the myrrh bearer, a group that traditionally includes a much larger number of people. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention women going to the tomb of Jesus. But it's only um, in the Gospel, according to Mark, in the 16th chapter, that the um, the three uh, Marys are, are cited. So I, that's just something to throw out there. Um, it, by no means is, does that encompass the entirety of the poem,
1: but it is an angle. So you're saying that the three babies are kind of like the three Marys. Is that your position? I see,
2: yeah, I see that. Or or the the, confirmed by the title, you know, the Eve of Easter, the Living Woman, Um, Mm -hmm. and the fact that the um, the three babies are routinely referred to by um, their association to men. Melville doing, or now it's Hawthorne doing this.
1: Um, they're hard to
2: distinguish from one another. So um, take it or leave it, but that's just one angle.
1: And she Um, does mention the resurrection, of course. She
2: mentions um, Eve of Easter and the shocking resurrection idea. And the line after, some one baby stirs now hungry for an egg.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I I think that that's really terrific. I mean, obviously, (laughs) Eve of Easter is great. And then I'm not sure that Bernadette would have made a direct buried correspondence because she would have said, oh, just like the three Marys. But it could have been an indirect resonance out of her parochial education. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's that was my sense, yeah. that this narrative, this story was present on some conscious or
2: unconscious level. And she was subverting it as well in an interesting way.
0: Mm-hmm. I thought in terms of listening to Bernadette reading, I picked up a similar vocal register to Alice Notley, actually, like a yeah, similar similar sounding, the voice similar, the delivery sim- similar, the factuality similar, the directness, not, you know, like um, William Butler Yeats reading... Now I will arise, now <laughs> and go and go to industry. You know, like none of that, like push that off the edge of the cliff and just this straight delivery.
2: Fast um,
1: and smart. Mm-hmm. You know, both of them are fast, smart women that are not uh, going to play any games with you. It's the way that that's how I hear their reading style. I agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, historically, it's interesting. It would be interesting to juxtapose Bernadette reading, you know, maybe at this moment and then 20 years later and then another 20 years, like to see how her delivery has changed over the years. And, you know, yeah, mm -hmm, definitely. Well, she had a pretty severe stroke. When was that now? 20 years ago? Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was in october of 1994 okay and i wasn't going to mention it but yeah that was a definite significant event but even before then her reading ethos was very different you know it was Mm. i think different not very different but different
1: you certainly could hear all those internal rhymes in her reading You know, that's like, I remember, I don't know if I said this during the Ted Berrigan reading or, uh, you know, podcast or not, that, you know, Ted, uh, I remember him saying probably more than once, you know, it's perfectly okay to rhyme as long as it's not at the end of the line, as long as it's inside, you know, it's kind of, it's okay to rhyme as long as it's kind of hidden. And, and I think in this poem, am I, am I wrong in thinking that as she gets towards the end, it starts to rhyme more and more? that she's, these internal rhymes increase, and she's sort of building up to her finale, which, which rhymes. There's a couplet that rhymes. And it yeah, is, that's
0: something, that's something I, that she was playing with in the Golden Book of Words. It's something that she applies as a kind of coda you'll see through that book. You mean the final end rhyme? The,
1: yeah, the, uh, final, the final couplet being rhyming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I lost the prejudice of paradise and wound up caring for the babies of these guys. It's a great rhyme, a great kind of off rhyme. Yeah, and when, no doubt. When you think about how paradise rhymes with these guys, is she yeah. saying that these guys are a form of paradise? Probably not. <laughs> but my favorite rhyme is a really funny, the house is quiet, I hear Melville's toy, I've never changed the diaper of a boy. So, you know, toy can be a word for your penis. And Melville is like a boy. Melville, Herman Melville. Like the way a little boy will play with his, like, toy ship. (laughs) Ha ha! That's what Melville did. He built a little ship, and he wrote a whole book about it. And what did he call the book? He called the book Moby Dick, after his own (laughs) toy. And when you say, I've never changed the diaper of a boy, of course, what you're thinking of is uh, that little tiny penis of the boy that you see when you change their diaper. It has all sorts of kind of resonances. I mean, I guess I will say that um, since I've started saying this already, to me, the poem is more about Milton, which is the first word of the poem. That's how I kind of responded to the poem, that the poem is a kind of... Um, a pastiche or kind of a parody in a way, kind of, you could argue that it's a kind of feminist rewriting of Milton. So Milton wrote uh, Paradise Lost, which is all about Eve and Adam, the first two people that uh, fell from grace. They fell from paradise. Paradise, which was the line I just read, the penultimate line of the poem. And when she says, I lost the prejudice of paradise, seems to be saying i'm eve i'm the eve in the title of the poem i'm the eve of easter and i was once in paradise and i lost it all and and how gray was it it was a kind of prejudice you know there's something about perfection that is a little suspicious it prejudices you against everything else it's like you know you see i i once met this couple <laughs> young couple from boulder And they said, Boulder, Colorado, they lived in Boulder, Colorado, they were young, good looking people. And they said, every time they went back to Pennsylvania, they were just impressed by how ugly everybody was. Because uh, when you're used to living in Boulder, everybody's beautiful. And that's the prejudice of paradise. You know, you, uh, you live in a place like the Garden of Eden, you leave the Garden of Eden, it's like, God, everything sucks outside of the Garden of Eden, you know? It prejudices, you, it prejudices you against everything because it's too perfect. I mean, that's—I don't know—that's what this means, but that's one possibility.
0: Phrase the prejudice of paradise. Is I have a feeling that it may come out of the Protestant tradition of preordination. That prejudice oh. means, you know, prejudice means uh, judgment before. The Uh idea, I believe, coming out of, and you'll know better than I would, Andrew, is that there's a certain, that when you're born, you're already, it's already written, whether you're going to go to paradise or not, predestination. And so there's this prejudice of paradise. So I have a feeling that, again, is a Miltonic echo. That makes Hmm. sense, yeah. And then the poem really
1: begins. I think my opinion is, She started writing the poem, and she had this idea that she's going to write a kind of parody of Milton. And she starts using these uh, Miltonic phrases and Miltonic uh, almost lines towards the bottom of the first page. Resting in the dark, I made the lucent dark. I stole images from Milton to cure opacous gloom. To render the room an orb beneath the raucous moon of March, eclipsed only in daylight. So it's she's writing in a very you know Miltonic style. It happens in uh, graduate school. I went to uh, City College of New York to get a master's in creative writing, and I took a course in Milton. I took uh, a whole course. We read Paradise Lost. Paradise Regained, which nobody ever reads because it's awful. It's all about Jesus. And Samson Agonistes, and then a bunch of his letters. And while I was reading Milton, somewhere I read, he described, here's the perfect diet for a poet. And it was, he was saying, you know, you should eat boiled grains. You know, it was a very bland, Simple diet, and I realized, my God, this is my diet. I have the perfect Miltonic diet, and I've like searched for it ever since on the internet to like prove to people that I am in the perfect Miltonic tradition. But I've never been able to find that passage again. So I have some sense of what Melville sounds, uh, what uh, Milton sounds like.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I took one of those courses too. The one thing I would point out. In that particular passage that you read, Sparrow, Mm -hmm. is that it ties in for me with my view of Bernadette as a, and this sounds slightly pretentious, but it's true um, Bernadette as a psychomantic goddess. Psychomantic? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, psychomantic. um, It has to do with divination. Oh yeah. Like divination necromancy. Through, actually, yeah, it has to do with divination through the spirit, you know, which is a kind of broad term, through the psyche, but it generally is interpreted as divination through the dead that you take on huh? the um the voice or the spirit of the dead. Huh? And for me this passage is very reminiscent of a book that she would write in a couple of years called Midwinter Day, which oh, maybe is the one
1: you and I saw her read in the yeah.
0: uh, Lennox. <laughs> yeah.
1: Great and poem.
0: Book yeah, length poem point that she wrote is, in one day. Yeah, there's interval between day and night, and at that moment she becomes she becomes this psychomantic force. Um, mm. and That's what I feel in that particular junction of the work.
1: And I see that also in Ted Berrigan and in those poets, those East Village, New York school poets, this shamanic power. They believe I remember Ted saying, I don't know if I said this before. uh, We write poetry to keep the gods from destroying the world. You know, they believe that poetry had some kind of massive spiritual power to transform the world. And here they were writing these poems, publishing them in mimeographed uh, magazines, you know, in this tiny subculture nobody even knew existed. And yet they were absolutely convinced of the kind of divine uh, intention, importance of their work. And I see that in this poem. Because then, to continue my reading of the poem, at first she thought, well, I'll just make it about Milton. And then she got this idea to sort of transform these three sleeping children or semi half asleep children into these uh, three great poets, or rather into these two great American prose writers, Hawthorne and Melville, who in fact knew each other. And it was Hawthorne who got Melville the job at the customs house. I believe that's my memory. Uh, you know, his one sort of real job once, Melville couldn't make a living anymore writing the same book over and over again about his travels on whaling ships. Then he sort of gave up as a writer and got this kind of cushy job in the customs house in uh, Manhattan, which is the spot, I think it's the spot that's now the Museum of the American Indian. Anyway, so they, you know, they were connected to each other. And then the third baby, I guess, she identifies as being her, uh, her mother, her mother's oldest name. But so she gets this idea that uh, that she's like this sort of god tending Melville and Hawthorne. And that they're like, it's as if these two great American writers are asleep in the bed and she's kind of caring for them. And what does that make her a kind of god, really?
0: But also caring for them not as a torchbearer not as somebody who writes a lot of essays you know gets a new edition of hawthorne and gets like great people to write for it and it's a but but in from the the affect of a mother no. which is different which is primordial which is direct and also that she herself is enacting the resurrection. You know, Eve of Easter, Mm. Eve of Easter and the shocking resurrection idea. Some one baby stirs now hungry for an egg. So she's so she's enacting resurrection directly and also along this kind of gender axis that is what that is liberating.
1: And this might be the first poem that's ever been written by a nursing mother taking care of babies. Just on the level of multitasking, on a kind of pragmatic level, here she is a mother. She has two kids, but she's taken care of three kids. She's got a kid on loan. They're not sleeping that well. She's determined to write a poem. And she figures out a way, because she's, among other things, really, really smart. So she's figured out a way to kind of be a mother and write a poem simultaneously. And to put the motherhood in the poem in this completely natural way.
2: Completely. And to that list, add the fact that she's also ruminating on what she's going to be cooking. Yeah. The next day, um, you know, I'll cook a fish, retain poise in the presence of heavy descendants. All of this is operational
0: concurrently. Right. Within this kind of domestic or the, um, there's this terrific quote um, that I that I've found or that I know about that I wanted to introduce because it's within this domestic universe that she is evoking and calling forth and making real uh, Melville Hawthorne and Milton Milton. And, and, and this is from um, this is from this collaboration that she did with Lewis in 1976. So this is coincident to the time um, that she was. And I don't know if she'd already written Eve of Easter or she was going to be re- writing it. This is um, around that time. And she writes regarding her experience of that summer of August. And I will go just one step further and take the liberty of saying that writing this book is different for me, so completely different from any other experience I have ever had with writing. Now, when I sit down to write, I tremble with fear before the page. Mm -hmm. And from the reactions of my body, I can tell that the possibility of finally telling everything and telling it As if it were all a series of plain household events, is at last coming closer. Wow.
1: Beautiful. I mean, I was also thinking about metaphor and how, you know, the New York school poets were at war with metaphor. And I remember Ted saying, um, every time I read in a poem, something is like something else. And I'm thinking of an example that comes to mind is like, you know, you read a sort of normal poem where it says, a puddle is like a mirror. The puddle mirrors the sky. The puddle is a mirror on the ground. So Ted said, every time somebody says in a poem, something is like something else, I think, no, it isn't. And so they're trying to find a way to write in, you know, poetry, which kind of requires, in a way, metaphor. Poetry is sort of metaphorical by its nature, but they're trying to write without using metaphor, just sort of the direct truth. And then she comes upon this brilliant idea. Well, two of these kids are descended from Melville and Hawthorne. So I'm just gonna call them Melville and Hawthorne, which is a natural thing to do, a kind of almost like a schoolyard trick where you find a kind of nickname for somebody. And now suddenly she's writing about these two writers as if they're in a bed and they're little babies. You know, she's made a metaphor that isn't a metaphor.
0: Yeah, it is a she is that is a, a metaphor. I would say one thing, and that is that the Hawthorne kid who is <laughs> who is Maria or Sophia. I think it's Sophie. Sophia. So- yeah, Sophia they're, Yeah, it's only the Melville child that's a descendant of of Herman Melville Metcalf's daughter Rachel right The others are just name associations but the one thing I'd say Sparrow is that you know when you use like and as those are similes and then right. metaphor is when you say the sky is a puddle of tears, tears. yeah and nice. thank you and <laughs> I think at the at the back of that and what maybe was scratching at the pelt of Berrigan is that all language is metaphorical. All Mm. language is in another words and then in parentheses, wink and in parentheses, like we're all in on the joke. In other words, language itself is a metaphor you know the tree we say tree but the tree is out there our saying tree isn't the tree it's a representation it's a metaphor of the tree Mm -hmm. it's a carrying over from what is
1: so then why have a double carrying over why say the tree is standing like a woman balancing on one foot why why Push. it's already a metaphor why make a metaphor of a metaphor maybe that's what they're thinking i
0: I think it's i think the um it's already ironic it's irony language is irony language is inherently ironic is the is the european attitude and an american attitude is who gives a fuck (laughs) but i think you know who gives a fuck you know within reason which is you know let's eliminate use of like and as as much as possible perhaps i don't think that bernadette uses the word like in this poem but hmm. i'm not sure did we find it in alice's poem
1: i don't remember looking for it
0: yeah well i'm noticing here that the uh, that look it's a feminist text it's
2: a feminist whether we're talking about the three Marys in the New Testament or the three, uh, Milton's daughters, uh, they're silenced. Um, uh, I think that she names the children Hawthorne and, and, and Melville um, in part as a response to the adjective illiterate. Milton, who made his illiterate daughters read to him in, in five languages till so they heard the news he would... Mary again. Is she trying to elevate the girls in her charge she's mothering um, by associating them with these writers? Hmm. The daughters of Milton were left
0: illiterate. How did they read to him if they were illiterate? I know. I'm, That's
1: I was just going to say that. I, I'm, I'm
0: confused. I'm confused. I'm confused. Well, I, think, I think illiterate can sometimes be applied to somebody who's not well read, you know, who can. But they can read. They can read, but they just haven't employed that capacity. The three girls she's caring for, too. There's so much emphasis on sound. Mm.
2: The sounds (laughs) they make, the the preliterate sounds, are rendered almost holy, have everything to do with this theme of of resurrection, right? The sound of sucking. It's also um, a squealing noise. She makes a squealing noise. Hawthorne's babies. Still deeply asleep. The one like my mother's out like a light. Light. Like a light. Oh, yeah. There it is. is, A metaphor
1: that is, in fact, a very colloquial phrase that people use, you know, without thinking it's a metaphor. You know, it's not a fancy poetic phrase. It's a phrase that everybody's mother uses. She's out like a light.
0: It's not elevated speech. Yeah. And it's not pretentious. It's not calling particular attention to itself so we didn't even notice you know my and it's mother's sort of out like run. a light
1: here there's a baby in a dark room she's out like a light well the room is dark the light is out you know it has a kind of irony in it
0: uh-huh yeah yeah yeah. and also that she could be a light that's out there
1: yeah and also when you're taking care of babies as you know Andrew you have a former baby that lives with you um you're you're constantly listening and nowadays in the whacked out modern world, you know, upper middle class parents have a little intercom. So while they're having their dinner party with you, they're listening in the whole time through this ridiculous contraption.
2: It's true. I hope
1: all our listeners, our podcast fans, are not these parents with these little intercoms. But uh, if you are, I understand why you do it, but it's a little ridiculous. But anyway, it's about listening the importance of really parenting is a lot about listening more than it's about watching. I, think.
2: I I love it. How this poem elevates the everyday, the quotidian Mm. into something holy, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whether it's the sound of the babies or the coming meal that she's going to um, cook the following day. It's very beautiful. It's not as if this domestic life she's living is keeping her from, where the juice is really at.
0: Mm-hmm. Take yeah. it,
2: man? Yeah. She's relocating significance and holiness to the the everyday, the, this
1: domestic scene, and I mean, also no, the not, whole history of literature or yeah. of American. Well, really, of all you could say, the whole history of literature is kind of, you know, encoded in this, you know, very ordinary uh, event of these babies asleep in a bed.
2: And not, not to push a theological reading any further than I already have, but um, that's what Jesus was calling for. Let's, you know, don't go to the temple. Let's mm-hmm. have the altars here at the dinner table with wine and, and bread, huh. people gathering together. That is the pillar and ground of the, the cosmos within. Um,
0: huh. Dig it. And I think it's an incredibly important messenger or gospel for the period of time that we're living We're not going to church. We're, you know, at the dinner table and um, keeping time with spring as, you know, things are starting to grow around us. Definitely along those lines in this entire poem, I don't know
2: how many lines it is, but I can say with some numerical confidence that that the external world is only really engaged with in uh, across a single couplet that one of you mentioned before, toward the end of the poem, check this out. Uh, But she will stir disturbing the placid sleep of Melville and insisting on waking us all. Meanwhile, the rest of the people of Lennox drive up and down the street now Hawthorne wants to eat. Just this, this couplet sandwiched in this lo- lo- longer poem, opening a window to the world outside of this domestic
0: state. Yeah, outside of, uh, apocryphally, the address was 100 Main Street. Really? <laughs> in Lenox, yeah. yeah. And also
1: there's so, something a little absurd or sort of comical, you know, and also it's kind of the humor of exaggeration. The rest of the people of Lenox drive up and down the street. Every single other person in Lenox, they're all just driving up and down. And, you know, you know what it's like to live in a small town. You drive up the street, you drive back down the street, you drive back up the street, you drive back down the street. And eventually you go to the Dairy Queen and then you go home. You know, like it's kind of a joke on, um, you know, what's the point of going out there, driving up and down the street? Meanwhile, I've got like all the greatest poets, uh, uh, greatest writers in America are, are in my house. Yeah, I absolutely dig I, it.
0: I wanted to to point out one thing, and that is that actually Bernadette does include a wink in the poem. Uh, I return a look to all the daughters, and I wink. Eve huh. of Easter, I've inherited this peaceful sleep of the children of men. Rachel, Sophia, Maria, and again, me, Bernadette. That uh, moment, you know, and me, Bernadette, all heart I live, all head, all eye, all ear. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah it's funny. interesting also that when you have a title like Eve of Easter, and I guess there are two instances, I think, where she evokes Eve of Easter. Uh, one in terms of this resurrection idea, and then in that phrase, Uh, And I wink, Eve of Easter, like there is an irony. She's winking to us, Eve of Easter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, which now it's going to be impossible for me to go backward and see anything other than Eve, the mother of us all. And And also Eve
1: of Easter, I've inherited this like, you know, Eve inherited the world, you know, she was kicked out of uh, Eden and inherited the rest of everything. I mean, I think that might be one of the meanings.
0: And definitely reinforced by, you know, the next line being, I lost the prejudice of paradise, and wound up caring for the babies of these guys. Yeah, which is
1: like a wonderful, I don't know how to put it, like, kind of a complex line, you know. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, we could say, you know, somebody was saying, "Oh, Andrew, you called this a feminist poem." I and I would, and I would I mean, you know, I have no idea. I mean, it's certainly to us in 2020 reading it, it's 100% like a feminist manifesto. Yeah. But if you were to say to Bernadette, now or then, are you a feminist? And if she were to say to you, "No, I'm not a feminist at all." you would not be surprised. I would not be surprised, you know, w- because, you know, whether she thinks of herself as a feminist sort of doesn't matter, but one could really picture her not thinking that she's a feminist. I'm a poet. I write poems. That's I, is how I picture her speaking to me in my mind. You know, that the feminism of it comes kind of organically, naturally, out of the experience. And and the last line, which is like the most feminist line, which is kind of like, you know, she's Eve. She's spent all of eternity. All she's got to do is, you know, her only job on earth is to take care of these uh, babies of these stupid guys. You know, <laughs> guys is not the most uh, flattering term for you men. You know, it's almost among the the most, in, you know, low class word you can use to describe males.
3: Yeah,
0: it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like got this uh, argot, like an American I got wound up caring for the babies of these guys. Um, these
1: guys it's, might have been how people talked in Ridgewood too.
0: But also, yeah, and it also brings it back down to. You know, so you have the proposition of this prejudice, complicated word of paradise, complicated idea, and then just wound up caring for the babies of these guys. And then also that there's an aspect, you know, which Bernadette may or may not have been sort of <laughs> listening for, of guys as being G U I S E, like guys <laughs> is, is a ma- uh, mask.
1: Yeah, disguise. Yeah. Bernadette Mayor may or not. Bernadette Mayer may not. Did you notice you said that? Like Bernadette Mayer. She may yeah. or may not have been thinking uh, this. Yeah. It's in her name. And also just the fact that she's naming these kids after Hawthorne and Melville, who are like really patriarchal masculine writers. These are girls that she's calling by male names to as, you know, possibly dignify them to connect them to this male world. And then the final, and she's parodying Milton, the great, you know, masculinist poet, perhaps the most masculine of all poets. And then the whole poem ends with babies of these guys. It's kind of like, hmm, maybe she is not so worshipful of Milton and Hawthorne and uh, Melville as she's kind of pretending to be.
0: But also underscoring the fact that they're, um, that she's highly familiar. Yes. Them. You know, they're part of her family. Mm. Hey, you guys. Hey, Herman, come over here, you know.
1: She's living pretty close to where Melville lived and Hawthorne lived. So, you know, they are kind of neighbors of hers. I think Melville lived in the Berkshires.
2: Yes, Arrowhead, Arrowhead Barn. In grad school at some point. Sitting in on a class on Melville where they were discussing his experimental novel, if you want to call it that, Pierre. Oh. Um, and the professor showed um, a period review of Pierre that ran in a 19th century huh. New York City publication. And the title was Melville colon, Crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe Are Melville was crazy. Th- thank you for um, opening this poem for me. It really, I feel it's opened before my eyes. Mm. And I have you two to thank. Mm. Oh, well, yeah. Right, right on. We
0: yeah, there, were, there were two other things, at least, that I wanted to say if, if I'm feeling like the shutters are starting to close. Is, um, you know, in this book, Golden Book of Words, uh, one thing I would point out is there is a poem dedicated to Alice Notley called, Why Aren't We Drinking Rheingold's Tonight? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, you know, it seems to be sort of like some linkage to to Alice Notley. But I also wanted to, and this is in part courtesy of my co-editor of Eating the Colors of a Lineup of Words, Michael Ruby, pointed out this really fantastic stanza of... Bernadette fully executing her literary homage to her antecedents. That's kind of a profound and clear saying of where she comes from. And I think that I would love to read that um, Mm -hmm. because I think it's super duper interesting and kind of situates Bernadette as a deeply studied, and it's a kind of similar to what you had said, Sparrow, about what poets should eat. This is sort of Bernadette saying, you know, this is what I ate. This is the meal that I found and that, you know, allowed me to produce some of the things I did. But well, let's hear it. So this is from the poem, Simplicities are Glittering. And I think it's also important in terms of what you said, Andrew, quoting from Kerouac, as I recall, you know, and that, and that sentence will be simple, Mm. isn't that? Yeah, that's right. I speak to you as Shakespeare, monitoring feeling. I speak to you as Valerie, with emotion, but about things. I speak to you as Proust, I can't be brief at all. I speak to you hurriedly battering, or as Gertrude Stein, just bantering, I love to speak to you as Mallarmé in Jewels and of Mm. a piece. I speak as Larry McMurtry in the vast spaces of someone else's words and the ideas of the opposite sex. I speak aloud as Williams and Pound about my tree and the queue for the bus. I watch you waiting there with them. I speak to you most as John Bunyan. (laughs) <laughs> a little mixed with Sophocles. I know what I can see. This allegory is as of a woman alone, Sappho perhaps, but it's faked and more like Virginia Woolf, not her real name. I speak to you in Hawthorne's clear Latinate sentences, so spun on my own head, so owned by me. I speak to you of my feelings As he dismisses me for being so Catholic, for being so divine, for trying to be so Ashbery and Kerouac all at once, Mm. for trying to be missing nothing, to even be Ted Berrigan and his Catholic Catullus at the same time. And in the end, each time I speak, I look around religiously as Dante did and I am meek. Huh. Oh,
2: I like that. That's really quite
0: good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it has that uh, f- that final couplet you were talking about. Speak rhymes with meek. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, it seems like she's in this poem that we're talking about, in Eve of Eden, Eve of Easter, <laughs> and this poem both. She's really sort of walking some kind of thin line between between. Making some kind of spiritual statement and and sort of undermining this statement so that you can't so almost like erasing the line that she's making that's, behind her.
2: Yeah, that's what I meant in my inarticulate um, <laughs> patient earlier about the Catholic resonance that she subverts simultaneously. Right. right. There is a line there that she straddles. It's a very interesting observation, Sparrow. Oh,
1: thank you. And, and I think, you know, there was something I wanted to point out about Eve of Easter, which she's making, I think, even more explicit in this poem that, that you just read, Sam, is uh, her erudition. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I didn't know her well, but I did have a sense, I'm talking about her as if she's dead, of her as incredibly well read. And a lot of these people, Alice Notley, Ted Berrigan, maybe Ted would read more baseball novels. You know, I think Ted was, would read high and low. And maybe they all did. But, uh, you know, they were in some ways, more as a group of people, they were like uh, more scholarly than professors. Like when you hang around like real professors at Harvard, like you notice like all they talk about is their um, swimming pools, their... Um, uh 401ks is you know they're just like people with a job whereas when you you know these East Village poets they were like on fire with learning and study
0: and all of that study is integrated to their I guess we've used the phrase quotidian but just their common lives, you know like it was now I'm reading Thucydides and now I'm taking a bus.
1: Yeah and also they were poor. They were not exactly
0: working class.
1: They're kind of uh, bohemians, but they had no money.
2: It seems like they tended to come from working class backgrounds, right?
1: They're, yeah, maybe pretty much all of them. I mean, as the token Jew of this group, I feel like it's my karma to discuss this very weird yes. uh, section here that where she discusses the Jews. Okay. And she's saying how each of these three children is half-Semitic. So I guess I'll read that, phrase, that uh, little passage. At once, I only looked at them all blended, each half-Semitic of a race always at war, the rest of their inherited grace from among Nordics, Germans, and English, writers at peace, rushing warring Jews into democracy when actually peace is at the window, begging entrance. So It sounds like she's referring to the warlike Jews and the wonderfully peaceful uh, Nordic and uh, German peoples. Uh, And, you know, it's I mean, one of my guesses about it. Okay, yes. No, no, you guess first. I mean, my you know, one of the things I think that these kind of poets would do is if they found themselves having a very uh, banal thought, they would just reverse it. And they would just say, you know, if they were going to say, oh, yeah, the peaceful Jews and the belligerent uh, Germans, they'll just change it. They'll just switch it around and make it into the peace, the, the peaceful Nordics and uh, the uh, warlike Jews. And, and then it'll just sort of confuse everybody. And there's some truth to it. There's some truth in, in reversing anything like the Jews in the Bible. Very warlike. Maybe they didn't really exist, but they're in the Bible. You want to read about them. They're killing 100,000 people at a shot, you know. And, you know, there, are, there's a, there certainly are German and Nordic and English writers who are at peace. And maybe the Jews didn't want democracy. Maybe they wanted to war because God told them to make war. Certainly at the moment that there's Israel, which seems to be constantly warring in the name of some insane biblical command uh, it's like someone does need to go to uh, Israel and rush the warring Jews into democracy see that's a very compelling
2: thesis (laughs) (laughs) but I think (laughs) uh, and you may may be right but what what I think is that this is a nod to um, this is a nod to Milton oh who had a very complicated relationship to Jews Mm. and who um, wrote a number of um, prose tracks that critiqued Judaism, Jewish theology, and and culture that I remember reading when I took my seminar. (laughs) (laughs) All three of us have studied Milton? (laughs) And Milton's works taught by Barbara Barbara Lewowski at Harvard College. Well... So I'm going to. Um, this is when I was in divinity school, so it was in the early 2000s. I, I can't I thought, even remember
1: who taught my Milton class. That's what a non entity it was.
2: It was fairly recently. But um, I remember his 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 thoughts about Judaism. That he, he, he likened them to being um, bellicose,
1: uh-huh.
2: or, or warlike in his depiction of um, Jewish culture. And that was um, something that came up in. The seminar. So I'm just wondering if she's not channeling some of his anti Semitism um, at this moment, but um, who knows? I mean, my
1: understanding about the early Protestants, uh, particularly Luther, is they thought, okay, now we've solved all the problems of Christianity. We're going to go to the Jews and tell them, here, we've made a very pure Christianity. Anybody can understand it and appreciate it. And then the Jews told him, we don't like it. And then Luther said, okay, let's kill them all. Well, he wanted
2: them to convert, right? Because that would be a sign of the end of human history, the second coming, the conversion uh-huh. of the Jews. In the book of Revelation, it's foretold. But um, Luther, I don't know what to say.
1: Yeah, but Milton is not that far from Luther in, in historical time and in the kind of the same movement, that early <laughs> kind of really on fire, Protestantism.
0: There's just Who the wasn't there? that cooked up the uh, the idea of predestination? Hmm. I, it, well, I can see his face, but uh, John, I don't. John Calvin.
2: Yeah, I think it was Calvin, wasn't well, it? Not. It's back to. Um, there are there are traces of predestination um, in the works of Augustine. Oh. Uh, John Calvin, in his um, Institutions of the Christian Faith, whatever his great magnum opus. Theological work was um, developed the concept in
1: in the uh, you know the 16th century. But it really maybe I know that Abraham Lincoln because I wrote that novel that's sort of about Lincoln. He was at war with the concept of predestination according to some arguments, some theories. So by the 19th century, I think some people, real free thinkers, were starting to have qualms about it.
2: Let's dedicate this podcast to Bernadette
1: Mayer. Oh. And to feel good.
2: And also, who could not forget Louis Friedson?
0: Oh, God, I was going to talk gonna...
1: about Louis Friedson.
0: Do you, do you know? I mean, I uh, I actually called Bernadette to ask her who is Louis Friedson. Oh, uh, yeah? Do yeah, you know, Spiro?
1: I have it in front of me. Oh, uh, Louis E. Friedson. Birth, 27 June 1908. Death, 9 November 2000, age 92. Burial, Sharon Memorial Park, Sharon, Massachusetts. Um, Oh, it gives you the plot. And then there's a little uh, digital place where you can put a flower, a digital flower on his grave.
2: I think she what she's doing is elevating um, an everyday friendship that she had, someone she liked who she wanted to elevate, you know, put into this epic catalogue that included Daniel Hawthorne and and Melville. Um, I think it fits in with the larger ethos of the poem.
1: I think it was um, I think it was Lewis Warsh's
0: uncle or something. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.